Let's pray. Lord, we are blessed to have some of the best youth on the planet. Grateful for each and every one. Grateful for all the young people I've had the great privilege of working with um, this last 10 years. Thank you for them. Pray that you'll just hold them in your arms. That you'll keep calling them unto yourself. That they will continue to serve you all their days. And Lord, we thank you that you saw fit to call any of us. That you loved us despite our sin. And Lord, we're going to be reminded of that today in this encounter with the Samaritan woman. And I pray that we'll remember that we're that woman. We're that person that you came to die for. We're the one that you reached out to, perhaps when no one else would reach out. Remind us again that we have indeed, if we've trusted in Christ, we've been washed in the blood. And all of our sins are forgiven. We give you praise and glory and honor. In Christ's holy name, amen. <clears throat> Reading from John chapter 4, I'm uh, going to read verses 1 through 30. It's a, it's a really long text, uh, I, I know, but uh, many of you are familiar with it, and we're just going to read it, uh, all the verses, and then uh, after an introduction, I'm going to come back and, and we're going to work through kind of verse after verse uh, there this morning. <clears throat> Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or it was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said, Well, go and call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now uh, is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem, that that is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they were, went out of the town and were coming to him. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen. The Apostle John declared that the purpose of the gospel he wrote, and he declared it in John 20, verses 30 to 31, he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, and they're not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. <clears throat> and it's in keeping with that purpose that John carefully recounts Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. I'll share some of those details in just a bit. We won't uh, go through every one, or we would be here actually multiple Sundays on this one uh, passage. But the central truth of this text is the self-revelation of Jesus uh, as the Messiah in verses 25 and 26. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. I know there's one coming who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you, Am he. This is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus reveals who he is. And he reveals it to the most unlikely candidate. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't reveal himself to the religious and the political and the social elite? I mean, why didn't he completely reveal himself to Nicodemus instead of choosing this woman? I mean, certainly he spoke to Nicodemus and told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He, he gave Nicodemus certainly some hints of who he is, but he did not fully reveal himself to Nicodemus. Instead, Jesus first revealed this great truth to one who would have been despised, one who, who would have been viewed as immoral, a Samaritan woman. 
Think for just a moment of the contrast between this woman and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a devoutly religious Jew. She, an immoral Samaritan from a, from a people that the Jews hated, and the Samaritans in turn hated the Jews. Nicodemus was a revered teacher. She was an uneducated peasant. He was wealthy. She was poor. Nicodemus was among the social elite. She would have been considered among the dregs of society. So why her? Why would Jesus first reveal his identity to such a woman? I believe it may well have been to demonstrate that God's grace and love knows no limits. God's grace and love knows no limits. No one is so far gone that they cannot be saved. God's grace and mercy transcends all barriers of race and gender and ethnicity and social status and religious background. No one is beyond God's saving grace in Jesus. No one. Those we might least expect to do so can come to Christ. Some of you have heard me tell this before, but some of you are relatively new, and I, I know you probably haven't heard this, but at my 15-year high school class reunion, I had been a pastor for two years, um, and most of my classmates didn't know that. We had lost touch over that 15 years or so with many of them, except for my, my closest classmates. But our senior class president, Pat Pfeiffer, who was a friend of mine, he did know. And because we had lost a number of classmates, including uh, one fellow, Eric, who was a very close personal friend of mine, Pat asked me to, to have a moment of silence and, and then a prayer to remember the classmates who had fallen and then to pray uh, for their families. When Pat announced that Danny Redmond was going to offer a prayer, you should have seen the mouse drop. I'll never forget that moment. I was not a bad kid, but I would not have been voted the most likely to become a pastor in the class of 81, I can tell you that. The saving grace of Christ can come to anyone. The saving grace of Christ can change anyone. So I hope we'll see this morning just how God began to change and work in the life of this Samaritan woman. In the opening two verses, Jesus learned that the, the Pharisees had noticed that Jesus was making more disciples than uh, John's disciples were, that, that John and his disciples just weren't baptizing as many people. So verse 3 Jesus decides to leave Judea and to head over toward Galilee. We're not told why he left. We can speculate that maybe he just didn't want any public rivalry between he and John's disciples. Verse 4 says that on his way to Galilee, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. John MacArthur in his commentary points out something I, I had never considered before. And it's the phrase, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through. 
MacArthur points out that though the road through Samaria was the shortest route, Jesus being a devout Jew would have never taken that route ordinarily. He would have gone around Samaria. He would have avoided the hated and dreaded Samaritans. And this hatred had, had gone on for centuries, and it was deep. And it had been escalated at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah because when the Jews returned after exile and began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans offered to help. But the Jews bluntly refused their help. And that only escalated the anger with the Samaritans. You can read all about that in Ezra 4. But because the Jews and Samaritans were such bitter enemies and they avoided one another, MacArthur believes that the phrase had to pass through Samaria speaks of Jesus having a divine appointment. Our Lord had to go through Samaria, not because it was the shortest route, but because he had a divine appointment to meet with this woman at the well. He had a divine appointment to demonstrate that salvation is for all who will accept it. Regardless, we know that Jesus was at the right place at the right time. He was at the well of Jacob at the sixth hour or around noon, according to verse 6. When verse 7, a woman from Samaria came and she came to draw water. And Jesus asked her for a drink. Now, women typically came to that well in the cool of the evening, not in the middle of the day. But likely she came at that time, and Jesus knew it because she was a social outcast. And she didn't want to deal with the stares of the other women. And she didn't want to deal with the gossip that would go around about her. But Jesus was there again for a divine appointment. There's no coincidences here, folks. And it shocked the woman, verse 9, that Jesus would ask for a drink. Men didn't speak to women in public. Men didn't even speak to their wives in public in that culture. And a Jewish man surely did not speak to a Samaritan woman. But again, Jesus is shattering all those barriers. So he answered her, verse 10, he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked. And I would have given you living water. Of course, she didn't understand. And honestly, I doubt we would have either. She was still thinking about physical water. And, and she essentially tells Jesus in verse 11, how are you going to get this water? That well's deep. You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to do this? Jesus had turned the tables on her. He had started out being the one who needed water, but he knew she needed living water. He was physically thirsty, but she was spiritually thirsty. The poor lady, she's still focused on the physical. And she begins to talk about Jacob in verse 12 and, and whether Jesus is greater than Jacob. D.A. Carson points out that this woman was twice wrong. The living water that Jesus offered did not come from an ordinary well. And Jesus was far greater than the patriarch Jacob. But Jesus is patient with her. He continues in verses 13 and 14. 
He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus was putting before her the living water of spiritual and eternal life. He was putting before her what her parched and dehydrated soul needed. She needed Jesus. But she's still focused on the physical. So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that, so that I may not be thirsty and, and not have to come here to draw water again. She's still wanting to draw water. And again, you know, we point fingers at these biblical characters, but I'm sitting here thinking I'd be that stupid too. I mean, I, I shouldn't use the word stupid. I'm sorry. But I'd be that shallow, that, that empty, that, have that lack of understanding. But Jesus didn't give up on her. In fact, there's no indication in the text that he even gets impatient with her. Now, he got impatient sometimes with the religious leaders who, who just should have known better, but they didn't. And they argued with him and they just tested him. Yes, he became impatient with those. But, but read through the Gospels and you'll see that those who just didn't understand, those who kept coming as serious inquirers, Jesus was just patient. He just talked to them over and over again. He explained the reality of their condition and that he was the solution. And, and that's what Jesus did here. He explained two realities that every lost person beloved must grasp the reality of our sin and the identity of Jesus as the Messiah the only one who can save us you see Jesus moved the conversation with this Samaritan lady to her real dilemma sin by telling her verse 16 go call your husband of course he knew the situation and so she answered, verse 17, with a half-truth, well, I have no husband. Well, it was a half-truth. Verses 17 and 18 revealed that the man that she was currently with wasn't her husband, but she had had five husbands besides this fellow. Jesus was exposing the reality of her sin. And he's reminding us that there can be no salvation without our repentance, without you and I turning from our sin. In order to turn to Jesus, we must understand, every one of us, how desperately lost we are. How desperately lost we are apart from Jesus. I'll never forget the night I understood this. Two fellows came around the dorm room and they began to share the plan of salvation with me. And they asked the age-old question, Danny, if you were to die tonight, do you think you would go to heaven? And I answered like so many before me and so many since me have answered. I said, I'm a pretty decent guy. I haven't murdered anyone or anything like that. Maybe I'd be okay. And with nearly the patience of Jesus, they began to explain to me 
that God is holy and I am not? That I have a sin problem that I cannot cure on my own. I never have and I never could be good enough because I would have to be perfect to cure my own problem. That's our reality, beloved. All of us have a sin problem. All of us are broken beyond our own repair. Maybe we haven't had five husbands or wives, but all of us, Romans 3.23, have fallen short of the glory of God. If we're going to drink of the living water, and that is salvation in Jesus, you and I have got to first understand that we are broken. We are broken beyond repair. We cannot fix ourselves. We're desperately thirsty. We're not just parched. We're completely dehydrated. We cannot save ourselves. So we must understand that the only living water is Christ Jesus. Now, the Samaritan woman doesn't quite seem ready to trust that Jesus is the Christ. But she does acknowledge, verse 19, that, that I perceive you're a prophet. And perhaps it's because she perceives Jesus as a prophet that she poses the dilemma in verse 20 about where to worship. Perhaps she truly wanted to know where to worship. Was it, and because he was a prophet, maybe he could tell her, was it truly in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, Samaria, or was it in Jerusalem? But you know what I suspect was going on here? I suspect she was coming under conviction. And she did what so many of us do when the Holy Spirit starts to convict us. And we don't want to deal with it. She changed the subject. That's what we do when we come under conviction. So she brought up an age-old argument about the Jews and the Samaritans and whether it was okay to worship on Mount Gerizim or to, or to worship in Jerusalem. But Jesus wouldn't be distracted. Remember, he was there for a divine appointment and he quickly countered, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And history tells us that just a few decades later, during the Jewish revolt against Rome in 70 AD, the Jerusalem temple was completely destroyed and thousands of Samaritans were slaughtered on Mount Gerizim. And more significantly, the new covenant would be rendered uh, obsolete. Verse 23 says, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The worshipers that God is seeking are going to worship in spirit. We're going to worship with heart. We're going to worship with truth. Worship is not ritualistic. It's from the heart. And this heartfelt worship is always consistent with the truth of Scripture. And it's focused on the incarnate Word of God, namely Jesus the Christ. And so when the woman says, verse 25, I, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ, Jesus said, I am He. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He's the one upon whom our worship is centered. And He's the only one who can save us. Did this woman ever accept the reality of her sin? 
Did she ever know that Jesus is the only solution? Well, possibly. She did indeed go, verses 28 and 29, and tell the townspeople, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. But there was still this question, can this be the Christ? And I would emphatically answer, beloved, yes, yes. And that's a question we must all answer. Either he's the Christ or he is not. I want to ask, have you firmly resolved that in your heart and in your mind? Do you understand this morning that you have a thirst? You have a complete spiritual dehydration because of your sin. Do you understand that the only solution is to drink from the living water that is Christ Jesus? The only solution is to repent and trust that Jesus is the Christ. He's the only one who can save you. Have you drank from the living water that is Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, I know I'm talking to people who's heard this many times. But I'm afraid sometimes that we still think we'll be good enough. That somehow in our lives we haven't fully surrendered unto Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would help us all see that, that we are lost. Our sins may not be those of the Samaritan woman or, or anyone else. And maybe we are decent men and women. But there's no one good, not even one. We've all fallen short of your glory. Lord, you alone are our Savior. Without you, O oh Lord, we're hopeless. So we turn again this morning to you as Lord and Savior. Maybe someone for the first time. Maybe they're doing so here. Maybe someone's going to listen later this week. And Lord, we pray that folks will give their lives to you, that they'll come under conviction, that they'll surrender, that maybe instead of continuing to argue with you, they'll just say, Lord, I'm trusting you on this. I don't fully understand, but I'm going to trust you as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, if we already know you as Lord and Savior, would you just continue to sanctify us? Lord, continue to make us more like you. We need your refreshing water. We need your living water. Come and make us new. Come and quench our parched and dehydrated souls. Give us your living water that wells up unto eternal life.
This we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. Let us come to the Lord Jesus. He's open for any and all of us who would repent and would come to Him. So let us come. Let us come to Him. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you today and forevermore. Amen.